Let's refine your beauty IQ with help from the most credible and relevant industry leaders and resources. We'll help uncover the answers to your most commonly asked questions, tie them up with a pretty bow, and serve them up on a silver platter. I'm Annie Thurston, board-certified aesthetics nurse injector. And I'm Jenna Irby, licensed esthetician. Welcome Welcome to to Charm Charm School. So once a month, guys, Annie and I are going to do a little Q&A, fun discussion. We're going to go back to basics and discuss relevant topics and procedures that to us, you know, are very familiar. We're used to talking about, but for the consumer still might be confusing because it's not part of their norm everyday life. So once a month, we'll be doing the back to basic topics. And if you have any questions, definitely send the Charm School podcast page a DM and we can try to hit those and uh, answer your questions once a month. So the two topics that we will be discussing today, we're going to be basically pulling two random topics that um, pertain to the services that Jenna and I practice on a daily basis that, again, as she mentioned, may seem like common questions for us. We we know how common the questions are because we get them on a daily basis. We really want to break this down and make things really easy for you guys. So what are our two topics today? Dermaplaning. And uh, we got me here, the lens Oh, Bajan's oh yeah, here. Bajan's here. Sorry. Shoot. What uh, are we thinking? We didn't a, even intro you. What a little quiet mouse over here. <laughs> um, so I feel like I'm going to sit on this one just so that way I can be a little bit of the consumer perspective because these two are such leaders in their industry. And I, while I dabble in it on a daily basis, don't know much. So I feel like I can kind of bring in that consumer perspective. Totally. So the two topics that we get a lot of questions uh, about are dermaplaning, Jenna, yeah, dive real deep into dermaplaning. And then with Annie, we're going to do tear trough filler. All right. I feel like get so many questions on that and trendy little tear troughs they are they really are and I'm also going to pull up the Instagram page and we've gotten a couple of questions on here so if they're relevant we will also make sure to touch on your guys's questions so that way we like we've said before it is all about you guys so we want to make sure that we're Touching on those questions. Let's do it. Welcome to Back to Basics with A and J. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Part one. Part one. I feel like we need a little background song. I know. So, Jenna, let's start with dermaplaning. Yeah. So I feel like I've gotten dermaplaning done a couple of times. I love it. It's it's great for, you know, the dry skin type. But I feel like it's um it's great for a lot of different people, but it's also not great for a lot of people because the first time that I came to you, you told me that I couldn't get it done. So mm-hmm. can you just dive in a little bit deeper into who is a candidate and what is the best type of skin? Blah, yeah. Blah, blah. Yeah. Most people can tolerate dermaplaning, I will say. However, if your skin barrier is highly sensitized, it might be too much too soon. And I I in particular like to work on the skin barrier function and just getting that stronger and optimally healthy before doing a dermaplaning session on somebody, because generally speaking, when I'm trying to build up somebody's skin barrier, I'm going to use ingredients to do so, not a manual exfoliation technique like dermaplaning. So what is a skin barrier? Can you dive a little more into that? So it's just, it's the way that our skin functions, right? So your skin barrier, we want to be um, thick, vivacious, um, performing optimally, performing healthy, optimally healthy, not oversensitized. Yeah. When somebody's skin barrier is, um, 
sensitized. It can be red, flaky, dehydrated. It almost feels chappy, like a windburn or a sunburn yeah. almost. Yeah. And so when new clients come in, um, first and foremost, I need to get your skin barrier stronger. And for me personally, I like doing that with ingredients. Um, and then we can quote, graduate you into doing a dermaplaning service if and when that's appropriate for you. And and most people love dermaplaning. I would say nine out of 10 people love dermaplaning. The individuals that don't love dermaplaning are those who are highly breakout prone, um, have acne. That That's, you know, contraindication for sure. Um, but in general, most people like dermaplaning. And I, I do tell people when you have dermaplaning, which for those that don't know what that is, dermaplaning is a manual exfoliation technique where we use a sterile surgical blade to not only get off the peach fuzz from the face, but also the dead skin. So, so amazing. So amazing. It makes your skin like butter. You're Makeup a dolphin. Goes on. You're a dolphin so much when you better. leave. Mermaid. Yep. Dolphin. And so, yeah, it, it is amazing. But I will say that the first one or two times you do it, I always tell people, you know, the skin is being stimulated. That hair follicle is regrowing. Sometimes that first one or two treatments, you can potentially purge from it. So I like people to understand that because if that does happen, and if they are experiencing a sensitized skin barrier too, it's a lot for the skin. So um, if it's not appropriate for a first or even second time service, likely in the future, we can integrate that for you. And again, most people do like it. And if you do purge from it, it usually only happens like the first one or two times because then your skin's used to it, the barrier's stronger, and then you're more tolerant of it. Mm -hmm. Purging meaning little whiteheads. You might have some breakouts. Yeah. I love that you um, approach that treatment very cautiously because I think a lot of people do think it's a very fluffy, you know, easy procedure that anybody right. can have at yeah. any time. And um, yeah, it definitely can be very aggressive in the wrong patients. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yep. if you feel like you have a sensitive skin type, if I'm hearing this correctly, I feel like maybe Dermaplane's not for you right out the gate. Maybe and not right out the gate. Because again, in my experience, if we can use certain ingredients to strengthen your skin, that for me personally, and my philosophy is the utmost, most important thing. Um, and then it's, you know, we can graduate you to that if it's appropriate at that point. Because I would say like actually... 75% of my clients are probably dermaplaning clients. Mm. And a lot of people love to have it in addition to maybe a chemical peel. We can also do it with hydrodermabrasion. There's a lot of really cool ways to integrate dermaplaning into other types of services as well. And it's also great for my, my pregnant ladies because totally. they cannot tolerate chemicals. Um, certain ingredients are Retinol, not okay. Not yeah. allowed to exfoliate. Yeah. Sometimes. In that way. Yes. Yeah, sometimes you just can't use certain ingredients when you're pregnant. And or so it's a good, it's a really great option to have that manual exfoliation and to still get some really good cell turnover and help you age graceful. But the million dollar question, yeah, does hair grow back thicker? No. So what I do tell people though, is that we're using a surgical blade. So it is taking that hair off at a blunt edge. And so when it starts to grow back, I think people get that confused with it feeling thicker when it's really just like that texture that you're feeling because it's coming in at that blunt edge. So you can feel it. And, you know, if you've never had dermaplaning before, it's your hair is long and soft and just kind of settles nicely. It's a vellus hair. So it's a little bit different than like on your body. So it doesn't grow back like a underarm no. hair where it's thick and coarse. No, and the only thing like that can that. do that is your hormones. If you have a hormone fluctuation all of a sudden, yeah, I mean, your hair could get darker, thicker, of course. But if your hormone hormones are staying steady, which 
That's a whole nother topic. <laughs> those can fluctuate as you get older. Um, you know, it, it should not be coming back thicker or darker, but I will say you can feel it coming back in. But then at the end of that four or six weeks, it softens on the end and goes back to how it was. So I feel like, can't I do the same thing at home though? Cause I've gotten like those little razors that you see at like Target or Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, some, I mean, I'm just going to say it. Sometimes I get a mustache yeah. and I use it for you gotta that. You got to shave the stash. <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm, I'm fully about you shaving your stash if you need to. Oh. Um, no, I mean, they're just different. And it's not that I don't like those types of at-home um, options because you can use that to get the hair off, but it's not going to take the dead skin off like a surgical blade is going to. Not only that, um, I don't even personally dermaplane myself because you cannot hold the skin tautly in the way that you need to maximize the dead skin removal. Mm -hmm. So I'll have Danny dermaplaney because again, I can't hold my cheek up and efficiently blade. Totally. You know, it it doesn't work that way. So if you're trying to maximize the dead skin buildup, which in turn is the whole point, it's for skin rejuvenation. And I tell people dermaplaning is not for hair removal. Yes, that's an added bonus in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It helps the makeup sit on more optimally. And yeah, that is a fun benefit to it. Absolutely. But for me, as somebody who is concerned about your anti-aging regimen, I love that it gives you um, that new skin, those new skin cells, right? Like we're forcing rejuvenation, we're forcing regeneration by getting that dead skin off of the face. And helps your other serums absorb at a much deeper level. So like to your question, no, those little, what are they called? Tinkle? Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, no. They're, they're, they're fine. really cute too. No. Yeah, and if you have hair on your face and you want the hair gone, cool, but it's not the same as getting dermaplaning yeah. by a professional with a surgical blade. No, I never... and I even, I mean, have access to dermaplane blades myself. I don't like doing it to myself no. because like you said, you can't hold your skin nope. at that taut angle. And even though I know how to do it and I'm professionally trained to do it, it's just, it, again, it's all about them angles. So all about them angles. You gotta, you gotta have somebody else holding your face and just take a nap and enjoy yourself, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. I never would have really actually thought of it from an anti-aging perspective. I really only would have thought of it as more of a hair removal. And that's exactly makeup. why I personally don't only offer dermaplaning as a service. You can go to some places and get like a quick cleanse quick dermaplaning and you're done. But for me, I want you to maximize your ability to gracefully age, which for me will also include the use of chemical peels, enzymes, LED, hydrodermabrasion. I want you getting everything in that service to maximize your cell turnover. And so that is why I only partner dermaplaning with other um, ingredients and modalities. So let's talk a little bit more about that then, because let's say I want to get a peel or something that is going to make me flake. And at the end of that flaking, I guess my question is, what is that time frame or how would you pair it with that? Yeah, so it totally depends upon how established. Well, for me, for example, like my normal, like regular clients, which is the majority of my clientele who are seeing me every four to six weeks who are receiving dermaplaning, if their skin barrier and their skin health is optimal, um, I could potentially do a light chemical peel on somebody with dermaplaning. And I know that client because I know her skin very well will not physically peel. Um, There's other clients who I know whose barrier is a little bit more genetically sensitive and they might have some flaking for a couple days. So it really just depends upon the client. And um, do you dermaplane before or after? I personally with, well, it depends. So if you're using a (laughs) self-neutralizing chemical peel, which I do often a lot, that is something that you would do after the dermaplaning. Okay. 
Yep. So dermaplane first, peel in the same service. Yes. Okay. Yes. And that's, again, I, my personal philosophy is I love partnering dermaplaning with other things like chemical peels because I want you to maximize your graceful aging ability while you're on my treatment table. Cool. What other services do you partner with it besides peels? I love doing it with hydrodermabrasion. Mm. Um, that's one of our signature services, the Lucky Diamond Glow. Lucky Charm Facial. Yep, the Diamond Glow. And yeah, we dermaplane first. And then we do a hydrodermabrasion, which is infusing serums into the skin to volumize and plump it. So again, you get that amazing hair removal plus cell turnover, plus then like a vitamin infusion into the skin. And the wow. downtime with the dermaplane and the Lucky Charm facial is really not a lot of downtime. But that's if like somebody- an event ready service. Yeah, like they're there. Sh- whoever you're going to as a provider should have the ability to tell you exactly what you can expect after a service. So mm-hmm. there are certain services that I offer that are specific for events. Like I know you're going to a gala on Saturday. Like I want to make sure that your skin is glowing and radiant, that there is no possibility of you flaking or peeling. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if your client is like, yeah, I don't mind flaking or peeling a little bit. Like I'm going to know what to do to create that process. So cool. Yeah. Love it. And I think uh, another cool like thing to think about is while men are not necessarily dermaplaning their faces right regularly with while they shave, how great men's faces age because they're constantly exfoliating. Yeah. So, yep. you know, yep, that Dang. is so true. That's like a whole nother episode we need to dive into. Yeah. About man day. Yeah. Manscaping. Totally. Manscaping is real. Mm-hmm. Well, and like the facial steps that men need to take. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. So, yep. but, but I'm going to turn the tables. Thanks, Jennifer. For yeah. That information. Yep. Um, Annie. Lindsay. Tear troughs. Mm-hmm. Let's talk. It's a hot topic. I feel like everyone calls in at Skin Charm to try to get in for tear troughs because um, I feel like that's probably one of the places on the face that people look in the mirror and they're like, oh, my gosh, my under eyes, they're awful. Mm-hmm. So tell us, who is a candidate for a tear trough filler? It's a really good question because most people, I would say, are not a candidate for tear trough fillers. (laughs) So oftentimes, you know, when we're looking in the mirror and we're seeing signs of aging, whether that's hollowness under the eyes or it could be a discoloration under the eyes, could be lines around the mouth, it could be changes in the jawline. Those are typically a result of the cheek and the volume loss that's associated with the cheek. Um, it also has to do with most people that have a hollowness under the eye. I can say this because I'm one of them can typically say they've had that for their whole life. It really has to do with how Mm -hmm. the eyeball sits in correlation to the bone. So it's called having a negative vector. Um, so people, when they look at themselves in the mirror and they see that hollowness, sometimes it's an issue of the cheek deflating. Sometimes it's an issue of an actual like purple hue under the eye. And sometimes it is an issue of a tear trough, like actual volume loss. And so most people, I would say, have a little bit of cheek deflation of some kind because that's where we actually age. The fat pads in the face, they start to separate. They start to get smaller. They descend downward. And so oftentimes if you kind of take them back to where they're supposed to be and reinflate them in a natural, um, with a natural approach on the actual cheekbone structure, that oftentimes solves the problem of the tear trough. Um, Another thing that can help with tear troughs because people that have a discoloration under the eye or like a purple hue, 
they're not the best candidates for tear trough fillers because adding to that doesn't adding volume doesn't necessarily do anything to take away the color. So if that's you, um, I would say using some type of eye cream that has brightening agents in it is going to be helpful for you. I would also say using a peachy pinky concealer to help hide that color is going to be your best bet. Yeah, the dark circles, I think, are a challenge for some people because it can be genetic. Mm -hmm. It also has a lot to do with like deficiencies within the body internally. That's a tricky one sometimes. And I do get clients who ask questions about, can I get filler on my under eye for this coloring? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's not generally the best answer. It's not. You know, the skin that's located under the eye is very, very thin. And so it's a very delicate area to enhance. And so for my patients that I actually do perform tear trough fillers on, I always will correct their cheek first if there's any type of deficiency in volume there first, because I always want the highest point of the cheek to be at the apex, like, you know, located right basically at your cheekbone, just right under your brow, the tail end of your brow. That's where the highest point of the cheek should be so that it's reflecting light in the right space. I think sometimes people um, you know, unfortunately we see ourselves in two dimension and we don't see ourselves in three dimension. And so they might think that adding volume to the tear trough while that looks good to them straight on, you know, when friends and family members are looking at them from various angles, it doesn't always ne- look necessarily look the most natural. And yeah. so I always make sure the cheek is intact first. And typically I'll tell people do this first, let it wait two to four weeks. And then if you still feel like you need volume under the tear trough, if I think they're potential candidate, then we might do it. And again, with that, it is such a fine line. And so you want to underdo it. Undercorrecting the tear trough is key. Um, I think when people overcorrect the tear trough, it can go very wrong very quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's when people sometimes think that people have crazy cheek fillers. It's because the eye is looking smaller because Mm -hmm. the volume that's right under the eye is parallel to the actual lid or the lash line. And that's not natural. Even babies have little lines under their mm-hmm. eyes. So there has to be a degree. <laughs> totally. There has wish. to be a little degree of, you know, of a volume depletion there because that's the most natural looking sure. thing. So when you, so when you do decide that somebody is a candidate, what type of filler do you typically use under the eye? So if somebody is a good candidate, um, what I, I would always personally use, and I think hopefully 99% of practices would use this as a hyaluronic acid-based filler. Um, There are different types of hyaluronic acid-based fillers, and some of them have what's called a higher G prime and a lower G prime. And those things, what that basically measures is how tall that the actual filler stands up Mm -hmm. and how much that that filler likes water and draws water to the product. So some fillers are not best suited for right under the eye because they could potentially swell. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the other thing is, you know, hyaluronic acid fillers are completely reversible. So if for some reason somebody didn't like something, we can take that out with a dissolving agent and that way you're not left with something permanent. I have had a few patients that have come in to me um, that, you know, I had a patient that somebody put Sculptra under their eye. That's not common. And please don't ever let anybody do that to you. Um, I've had, and Sculptra is a great product and it's great in other p- parts of the face, but under the eye is not well suited for that. What is um, Sculptra? Is that it? It's, also a hyaluronic It's base? not. So it is a dermal filler, but it's considered a biostimulator. So it actually oh. stimulates your body's own production of collagen. But Sculptra, the way that it goes in is it is a liquid that corrects temporarily. It goes back down. So you, after a few days, you won't see anything. And then 
about eight to, you know, 12 weeks afterward, it starts to stimulate your body's own collagen production response. And so it swells up and it fills out that area. So most of the times people use Sculptra in areas like temples, which is off-label, jawlines, sometimes cheek, mid-face volume loss. For people that have like mid-face volume wasting, if you're very, very thin, um, that product can be really well designed for you. It is actually on label for HIV patients. So people that have actual bone loss, it can help with re-stimulating That's crazy. Yeah. So if someone doesn't want to use filler under their eye, but they still want to see results. Is there anything else that they can do under the eye to make that have more volume? Yeah. I think like in the right patient, tear troughs are very treatable. Um, and just as quick side note, tear troughs are definitely a high risk area. Um, I want to make sure that patients are going somewhere that people know how to treat the, the tear trough the most safe. Um, anything in medicine is never guaranteed. It's practicing medicine. And so nobody can ever guarantee that nothing is going to happen to you, but you need to partner with a provider that knows how to handle something if something goes wrong. So please in the tear troughs, don't go to just anybody and do not get a deal on your tear troughs. (laughs) Rant over. Good. Um, (laughs) So yeah. So, um, but I think, so for the appropriate patients, a little bit of dermal filler can be very helpful, but I do think treating the cheek, making sure your cheek is intact and you're, you know, all your building the foundation of the house, so to speak, before you kind of go in and fill in the little cracks and grooves. Um, and when I say that, I mean, you know, your cheek needs to be appropriately filled. Your jawline needs to be appropriately filled. And then oftentimes you don't even notice a lot of the signs of aging that you might notice in your mid face. But if you still do, you know, for things like nasolabial folds and tear drops, you can always go back and treat those secondarily. But I think that should be the second course of action after treating the, you know, the foundation. Um, you can also, like I said, use concealer, use something that is peachy and pink and brightening, and that will help with your discoloration. Um, you can also is with some lasers. There are some lasers like fractionated erbiums, um, that can do a little bit of skin tightening and that Mm -hmm. can be very helpful. Um, if it's an issue of laxity or crepiness, um, we also do inject PRP. So that's where we take your own blood. We spin that up and it becomes the platelet rich plasma. We can inject that and that can help to kind of strengthen and thicken the skin help with crepiness. Um, and then lastly, something that people come into me for, I would say with the under eyes that they sometimes think is tear trough is little lines under the eyes. And that has to do with the obicularis oculi muscle, which is located around your eyeball. So your eyes have circular muscles all the way around them. And that's what contributes to crow's feet. Um, if you are going to an experienced provider, they can, you know, kind of see if you're a good candidate for this, but there is a little spot that's located right under the eye. And we can pop a little bit of Botox there, you know, off label. And that can really help with that little line. Sometimes it's really not an issue of volume depletion, but really more of a muscle pull. Cool. Yeah. What about sign me up for all of it? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so let's can we kind of dive a little deeper into filler versus PRP versus possibly fat transfer? Yeah, Ooh, yeah. Talk about fat transfer. Totally. I mean, we definitely need to have a uh, a facial plastic surgeon on to kind of speak to fat transfers and exactly how they work. But I can speak from my own perspective of working in facial plastic surgery, and so. Um, well, first of all, to touch on PRP, again, it's it's more of a, 
you know, um, stimulating your body's own collagen synthesis. So it goes in as a liquid. You may have a little bit of swelling and or bruising associated with those injections for a few days. Um, but then that actual volume depletes, but then over the next eight to 12 weeks, you are stimulating your body's own collagen production. And so that skin underneath can get a little bit thicker, um, and just not quite so crepey. It can kind of help with brightening and just strengthening the skin overall. Um, whereas fat transfers are a little bit different. So fat transfers are very, very trendy right now. I think that there's a lot of people using them in all different kinds of, you know, areas of the face and the body and everything. Um, something that we touch on in the cool sculpting episode, if you haven't heard that one yet, um, is that, and it's something that I was not familiar with before working in aesthetic medicine, but it is that you are born with every fat cell that you will ever have in your body. And those cells just get bigger and smaller. And so with fat transfers, what we do, what surgeons do, I don't do this is they pull out the fat. And typically that's from like an area where, you know, you, you carry a little bit of extra weight. So maybe it might be your abdomen. It might be outer thighs. It might be inner thighs. I know that there's certain, um, areas that typically perform better and they take those fat cells, they harvest them. They have to handle them very, very carefully. They're like little egg yolks. And then they can basically re-inject those into areas of the face. And so under the eye area, um, that is, and, and full face, you know, sometimes people don't want to have filler for the rest of their lives. So they'll use uh, fat transfers as like a, a one and done type of procedure. Um, now I will say that fat is, um, very delicate, so it has to be harvested correctly. It has to be handled correctly. And even when it is handled correctly, I know there's a lot of surgeons that won't even do a fat transfer independently, um, of other surgeries because it's very unpredictable. So fat transfers do not always work. So when a surgeon is filling the face with fat, they will typically, you know, correct you to what they think is optimal correction. They will never overcorrect you because in one third of the patients, all of the fat stays forever. In two thirds, like the other third of the patients, I would say some of the fat stays and some of it dies and goes away. And then there's a third of patients that none of the fat performs and it all goes away. And so a patient should really know that that is a risk factor. Some people are totally fine with that and they're willing to take that risk, mm -hmm. but that's something I think it's really, really important that we can have a surgeon, you know, speak to more on that. But when it does survive, it's in there for life. That's so crazy. And they can't take it. Bad. I believe that they can take it out. Um, I'm not sure how easy that that process is, but you know, go to a good more on that. Yeah. We need to dive deeper into that. Cause oh, I do. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Totally. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I would say, um, that I learned is that fat transfers, especially in the face, um, and actually I should say in general, and again, we'll talk more about this with a surgeon because I am not a surgeon and I'm not <laughs> claiming that at all. Um, I don't have that high level of knowledge, but I will say that I, with the surgeon that I used to work for, um, he did recommend that patients did not get a fat transfer until after they went through menopause because oh, oh, the fat uh, cells, they, you know, if you're taking the fat cells from your tummy, for example, and you put them in your face before you go through menopause, um, after you go through, they might look fine right beforehand. But if you go through menopause, women do tend to carry more weight in their stomach and in their thighs. And the fat cells do tend to hold more and they get bigger um, for certain areas. So that could theoretically be a really catastrophic problem. If you put fat transfer into your face, you liked it when you were 35, then you went through menopause, your 
your those cells have memory, so they know where they came from. So they're just going to blow up the way that they would have in your stomach. So, oh my god, that just awful. really partner. <laughs> this is not to scare anybody, but this is information I've learned, and I yeah. really think it's very interesting. No, it's very so, pertinent to yeah. anyone who's thinking that they're a candidate or wants to get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all really great information. I feel like there's so much more we need to dive into with the uh, We'll be getting surgeon, back to basics, y'all. Sure. Totally. Once a month. Cause... We hope that that was helpful. Yeah, yeah, but I feel like I have one more question, and it's kind of for the both of you. So mm-hmm. for someone who's thinking about getting, whether it be tear trough filler, cheek filler, Botox, dermaplaning peels, blah, 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 what is the timeline that correlates between the two of you, because I feel like a lot of times I want to come and see Annie for Botox, but then I'm not so sure how close I can get a dermaplane then after that. I think it really varies on the procedure. I mean, I think if you want to be really super safe, just say two weeks before and after, what would you say? Yeah. I mean, if you're coming to get, you know, a dermaplaning with hydrodermabrasion with me one day. It's you totally could do fine. Botox the next day. Yeah. You really could. And be Absolutely. Fine. The only thing I would be conscientious of is you putting like a disinfectant on their face that potentially could be irritating if they had had a chemical peel or something oh, like sure. that. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, but in that scenario, you can do them close together. In the opposite scenario, um, if you're having Botox or an injectable, I just tell people, wait a good two weeks and then come see me. Yeah. If you want to be super safe. I think we talked about this too in the chemical peel episode, but I'll just say it here too, just in case. Um, I know some surgeons and just medical providers in general um, prefer if you're going to have a really heavy duty laser or a chemical peel for you to have Botox at least a week before, because that can put oh, less right. tension yeah. um, on those areas that are healing. And so you can kind of he- heal at a more rapid rate. So I think yeah. this always goes back to talking to your own provider and them guiding you based upon your specific circumstance and the services that you're receiving. Totally. So if someone wants to come to you too, how do they get in contact with you if they have any questions. Oh yeah. You can hit up my website. My brand is called SkinFit Aesthetics. It's skinfitaz.com and my Instagram handle is at skinfitaesthetics. And you can find us at Skin Charm. Um you can find us on Instagram at, at @skin.charm and website is skincharm.com. My personal Instagram is nurse annabelle. So come find me. Yeah. And if you have any further questions on anything, you can always call Skin Charm. I see these two girls often. So call us anytime. We'll put a, a telephone number somewhere. Totally. <laughs> we'll find a place. For totally. it. And also, like we mentioned, <laughs> if you do have a topic that you want us to discuss on our Back to Basics with A&J, send us a DM to the Charm School podcast Instagram page. Totally. You can also email us. Our email is located in our bio as well. But we really do I don't think we can say it enough, but we want to make these episodes all about you and making sure that we're touching on topics that are super relevant to you. So please, 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 no topic um, should be an embarrassing thing. Like whatever you want to know about, we want to know about it for you. And we will find the resource to answer the questions. Totally. Cool. Cool. Have a great day, guys. It is back to basics. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for tuning into that last episode. Make sure to stay connected with us. Go to wherever you download your favorite podcast to subscribe to Charm School and be the first to know when our newest episode is released. You can also connect with us on Instagram at Charm School Podcast. In addition, you can check out our personal Instagram accounts at Nurse Annabelle and at Esthetician Jenna. Also peep our blog at charmschoolpodcast.com. Hashtag welcome, welcome to, to Charm School. Charm School.